Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. We have a guest on the show today, Ben Franta. Ben is a scientist, science historian, science writer and activist. He studied for a PhD at Harvard working on solar cells. While he was at Harvard, he became involved in the movement to persuade that university to divest from fossil fuels. After finishing his first PhD, he moved to Stanford to take up a PhD in the history of science, where he now studies the history of climate politics and the influence of fossil fuel companies on that politics. His recent article in The Guardian, published on New Year's Day, explained how Edward Teller, the atomic physicist, knew about global warming in 1959 and even warned the fossil fuel industry 30 years before it hit the mainstream. We had a wide-ranging discussion. The first half, which you're about to hear, is a general discussion of the politics of climate change. Why has this problem proved so difficult to deal with? So, Ben, thanks very much for coming on the show. First, I'm going to ask you a few questions about climate change in general, and then we'll go into your own background and your own work. So, the scientific basis for carbon dioxide producing anthropogenic climate change effects goes back to Arrhenius at the turn of the 20th century. In 1896, he published a paper describing this initially. Back then, they knew that carbon dioxide impacted climate. Indeed, it was one of the key insights that this did this, that led us to understand the paleoclimate data. But perhaps back then, it wasn't necessarily understood that human activities were causing emissions that were actually changing carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, and hence causing warming. But since the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and so on, we've had satellite measurements that have confirmed that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is increasing and in line with the amount we emit. In 1988, James Hansen's testimony before Congress was a big turning point in terms of public awareness. And since then, we've had decades of climate negotiations internationally. We've had the United Nations on board. But also since then, emissions have continued to rise almost relentlessly. In fact, they've continued to rise in a way that's almost close to business as usual projections, as in they've continued to rise almost in the way that we'd expect if people hadn't made any particular efforts to curb them most of that time. So. Given that this is the case, what do you think has been the biggest obstacle to really tackling climate change and carbon emissions as a problem? Mm -hmm. This is a great question. This is, in some ways, the central question is, you know, how is it possible that we've known about this problem for so long and yet have done so little about it or at least not enough about it? And in my own research, I study the history of climate politics, and there are essentially three different uh, you might call them interest groups or, or uh, demographic groups that, that have been behind most of the, the political opposition to acting on climate. And so that, to answer your question sort of directly, the biggest obstacle as far as I have been able to, to find is political opposition. It's not the science itself. It's not even the, the technology fundamentally of dealing with the problem, it's political opposition. And and the three groups that, that have worked very hard, spent a lot of money to block uh, any policy to deal with climate change are perhaps, they're not surprising, but one is commercial fossil fuel interests. Um, this is in some ways sort of obvious, uh, but it's something a lot of people maybe resist uh, acknowledging. Um, maybe it sounds like it's too simple, but in reality, in the historical record, uh, it is primarily fossil fuel interests. And so these are fossil fuel producers. These are groups that are direct users of fossil fuels. So that, that includes electric utilities that use a lot of fossil fuels. That includes automobile manufacturers, um, petrochemical companies, you know, companies that make chemicals out of fossil fuel feedstock. Those are the commercial interests that have spent a lot of money 
over many decades to block climate policy. Now, it, it actually, from the outside, it can appear more complicated than that because there are some other groups that are involved as well. Um, there, uh, people are well aware that there are different ideological groups that oppose climate policy. Um, these groups vary. They might oppose climate policy because they oppose all government regulation and they see climate policy as part of that. Uh, they might just have a huge distrust of the messenger. So they might have a big distrust of the environmental movement as a whole. And so they don't, they don't believe a lot of what the other side says from their perspective. Um, but in almost all cases, those ideological groups who operate through think tanks and different organizations, and they, they're the ones that promulgate <clears throat> or are, are their spokespeople for a lot of climate denial, uh, they're almost always funded, supported financially by commercial fossil fuel interests. So there's a tight bind between those two groups. And then there's a third faction, which gets a little less attention, but they have been present um, for many decades in, in, again, trying to block climate policies. And that's, uh, I call them plutocratic interests. Um, people often call them conservative interests, but really they're defined by uh, large concentrations of capital. These might be the kind of super wealthy people um, in, in America and in different countries. And for many decades, they have opposed the very notion of a regulatory state because the, the state is sort of the only entity powerful enough to take away their, their money. And so they've kind of waged a decades long war against the state in that regard. And for, for them, climate policy is, is, uh, a subset of the regulations that they're fighting against. So sometimes you see these groups overlap, like you might see fossil fuel interests overlap with plutocratic interests. And um, for example, the Koch brothers are an excellent example of a case that overlaps. So, so really, if we want to understand the political opposition to climate action and climate policy, it can, as far as I can tell from my research, it can mostly be boiled down to those three groups, commercial fossil fuel interests, ideological groups, and plutocratic interests. Okay, so we've discussed how the political situation and the lack of political will to tackle this problem is really making the biggest difference compared to things like uncertainties in the science or the inability to have the technology to transition to, say, a clean energy system. You've talked about three key groups here. The fossil fuel companies opposed on economic grounds, conservatives and free marketers who are opposed on environmental grounds. I think it would be useful just to talk about how is it that they block and impede climate policy? What methods do they use? Are we talking about disinformation? Are we talking about outright corruption and bribery? Or are there sort of more subtle forms of campaign contributions corruption? What sort of evidence of the methods that they've used have you found? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great question. So the, there are many different strategies that get used. Um, often they get reused. So when we see them once, we are, can be more attuned to them in the future and we might recognize them again. So in the history of, of climate politics, things really heated up after James Hansen gave his testimony in 1988 to Congress saying that not only is climate change happening, but we're pretty sure that humans are the cause of it. Um, around that time and right after that, uh, various governments of the world started to act uh, to address this threat. And that's when the climate change counter movement or the, the movement to stop action on climate change that's when that movement mobilized as well. Um, and again, that, that was basically composed of those three groups again. <clears throat> now, the strategies that they use, uh, 
are pretty straightforward. In fact, um, uh, typically what happens is the following. Um, some government or group of governments will propose a climate policy of some sort. This could be carbon tax. This could be a cap and trade system. Uh, this could be a national policy. It could be an international policy. And typically what happens is that the industry um, or uh, some some sort of group in the in this climate change counter movement will uh, commission economic studies that conclude that this policy would be devastatingly expensive. That's sort of the first step that that forms the ammunition for fighting against the policy. That message gets broadcasts broadcast in media uh, to the public. It gets broadcast to the Congress, to politicians, and then that message gets picked up there. So there, there becomes a sense, or there's there's created a sense in the public mind and in politicians' mind that this policy is extremely expensive and we have to somehow choose between dealing with climate change and having a healthy economy. Now, if you actually look at these economic studies, they are uh, they're essentially designed to come up with that conclusion. Um they, in fact, some of them are designed in a way that they would never find any policy to be favorable by definition um, because they're kind of formed with a circular logic. So so uh, personally, after reading these economic studies, I, I don't think that they're very reliable, but I think they serve a purpose, a political purpose. And that is, you know, now we have a quantitative uh, number. We have something that sounds scientific. And we can put it out there and say, oh, we can't have this. It's going to be way too expensive. Um, now, part of that, part of putting that in information out is sometimes the formation of front groups or, or what are called astroturf organizations. So this is a, gra a grassroots organization that's not actually a grassroots organization. It's kind of fake grass, hence the astroturf. Um, but this has been another strategy that, um, especially commercial fossil fuel interests have used uh, for many decades to create the image that there is widespread spread uh, popular opposition to climate policy. And they, so they use that as well. Then, of course, there's direct political influence. Um, there's, you know, political uh, campaign donations and things like that. So there's kind of a range of different strategies that are used. Um, and but what we find is that they're almost always the same. They sort of repeat themselves again and again. And I think a great example of that is when President Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And if you read his speech, the talking points that he used uh, were essentially exactly the same talking points that were used to defeat climate policies in the United States throughout the 90s. Any sort of uh, energy or carbon tax, um, even American participation in the Kyoto Protocol at, in the late 90s. We'll come on to President Trump in a little bit more detail later on. <laughs> Sorry for saying President Trump. But I did listen to that speech where he withdrew from Paris. I remember it well. And one thing that really struck me was that in previous communications on the issue, he'd outright denied that climate change was even a thing. He called it a hoax that was invented by the Chinese, which is just a completely, completely bizarre take given the history of climate science. But anyway, in this speech, though, in the Paris speech, he had this bizarre combination of it would be too expensive to fix slash this is a bad deal slash the effects would be too tiny to notice a few tenths of a degree of warming. And of course, as soon as you hear such a garbled interpretation, you know that he knows nothing of the science and doesn't want to find out either. And he doesn't know anything about what the temperature increases would mean for the world. I mean, 0.5 of a degree is massive for climate scientists because it's a global average. It's not just the temperature on any given day. But anyway, 
The fact that he's parroting these fossil fuel arguments about scientific uncertainty, fixing the problem being too expensive, that sort of thing, it comes as no surprise. Before we move on from this, there was a very famous memo produced by ExxonMobil, I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about, the fossil fuel uh, oil and gas company ExxonMobil, which was about the campaign that was designed to produce a perception in the public mind that there's a lot of doubt about the science of climate change in order to block climate policies. And while there is doubt and disagreement, as there is in almost any scientific field, there is no doubt that we are causing the warming and we need to cut emissions or face potentially terrible consequences. Yeah, that this is a very famous memo. This memo was written, I think, in the early, uh, the first few months of 1998. It's right after the Kyoto Protocol was was signed at the end of 1997. And this was involved ExxonMobil, but it involved other groups in, in the petroleum industry as well. Um, it was drafted at the headquarters of the American Petroleum Institute, which is the, the umbrella, the big umbrella trade organization and lobby group that represents the American petroleum industry as a whole. And some, some p- people that we've seen recently, like Myron Ebel, who played a, a, a role in the Trump administration's uh, uh, sort of establishment, getting people in the agencies that he wanted to get. Uh, he was there and, and some other, the sort of usual characters were there too. And and this is a really famous memo because it lays out in very clear, forthright detail what the strategy is of the industry to defeat climate policy indefinitely. Um, and then that memo was leaked um, to the public. And and that's right. Essentially, the the centerpiece, the whole the whole point of this strategy is to create enough uncertainty and doubt about the underlying science that the public will no longer support climate policy. Because in that memo, um, those the people who drafted it, they acknowledge the fact that if they just use economic arguments and only those, then they can't have the moral high ground and they ultimately can't succeed in the long run just by using that strategy. So they have to create uncertainty about the science and their various methods that they laid out of how they might do that. Um, and part of it actually kind of pretty to me, the most disturbing part of it is that the main centerpiece of the plan was actually to to insert themselves into climate science uh, sort of surreptitiously, sort of discreetly. And in so doing, control the shape of the discourse uh, towards more uncertainty and less aggressive action. Um, but, yeah, that's a that's a central strategy as well. This this uncertainty and doubt. But I think it's important to un- understand you pointed out that Trump's, for example, President Trump's talking points. Some of them are self-contradictory. You know, one might deny that the problem exists and at the same time say, well, this policy is not going to help the problem that much, which, of course, that doesn't make any sense if you don't believe the problem exists in the first place. Yeah, you're implicitly acknowledging that it exists. Right. Yeah. But one has to understand that the the, they all have the same purpose. The purpose of all the arguments is the same, and that is to not do anything about climate change, um, even if the arguments themselves don't uh, don't align with each other or not consistent with each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think it's just before we move on to the next topic, 
I've been doing a few episodes about climate change now, and it keeps striking me that politically, it's such a difficult problem to deal with. And part of that comes from the science of it, because we know it's fairly difficult to measure. Of course, it is in the sense that, you know, we can't get unequivocal evidence that the system is going to warm by a certain amount until it does, because of the potential for slow feedbacks and physical processes that we don't entirely understand, and the responses of things like ocean heat uptake, for example, which they think is the culprit behind the question about the fact that the warming seems to slow down in recent years before stepping up again in 2016-17. The question everyone wants answered is, what will the temperature be in 30, 50, 100 years? But of course, this depends on data from a temperature range we've never been in, physical parameters we don't fully understand because the system is so complicated, and also a great deal on human behaviour. When you compare an honest assessment of these complexities and the IPCC reports with all of their scientifically justified uncertainties to a sort of pseudo-scientific denialist argument where they say, oh, the whole thing's made up, carbon dioxide is plant food and doesn't really impact warming, and people might want to accept the much simpler argument, and you can be much more forthright and certain about what you're saying if you're being less intellectually honest, especially if no one bothers to fact-check. But regardless of what the climate sensitivity is, or how the feedbacks operate, we all agree that it's caused by us, and it gets worse if you keep emitting CO2, and we have to stop. But climate scientists, because they're trying to be very intellectually honest, they have to be very reticent about what they say. If they make a projection like temperatures will go up by 1C over the next few decades, and they turn out to be wrong, they lose credibility. And that just doesn't happen to deniers. They never have to prove anything, but they can just shift seamlessly to the next argument, from it's not happening to it's El Nino to carbon dioxide doesn't affect climate to we're not a source of the CO2 that's changing to the effects will be tiny without ever having to look at the science, without ever having to consider things. And they can provide some of these contradictory arguments at exactly the same time. So we'll come on to the problems of dealing with climate change within our current socio-economic and political situation. But obviously the fact that it takes place over decades means that individual governments who are more concerned about getting re-elected in four years, they don't have to worry about the problem and they don't have any incentive to deal with it and they certainly won't make sacrifices to deal with it. So, for example, we've seen in China recently that there's been a drive towards renewable energy and solar panels, but you can argue that perhaps it's driven more by air pollution in cities, which is a more pressing problem for the current regime. Of course, I can't look inside President Xi's mind and see what he's thinking, but it seems to me that they wouldn't be as concerned about getting off coal-fired power plants without that issue. Yeah, that's possible. You know, I I don't know what the internal strategy is of the of the Chinese government. My, you know... My sense is that um, is that climate the forces of climate denial and obstruction are almost uniquely strong in the United States. They exist in other countries too. Australia is a good example, um, but it doesn't. Those forces do not seem to be nearly as strong politically or financially in China. Um, and I think that might be one reason why they are able to move, among other reasons, why they're able to move more aggressively in dealing with the problem. Of course, they also may not have the same sort of ideological uh, blockages with the government actually going forward and <laughs> making big investments in a in solving a problem um, as the United States does. Um, but I also get the sense that that China knows it's on the ascendant and it probably does not want to inherit a world you know that's very unstable and chaotic uh, to severe climate change. Um, and so my I would I would guess this is of course only a speculation. From the outside, but I would guess that they actually do want to solve the problem, and they also see a great opportunity because they know ultimately the the technological infrastructure undergirding the energy economy, which undergirds the entire economy, is not going to be based on fossil fuels, and they they have an opportunity to control that. Um, and so I think they're moving moving that direction for 
for geopolitical and economic reasons as well. Mm-hmm. I guess they're thinking more long term about things than the current regime in America. And this links to the breaking news today as we're recording this, that Trump is putting a 30% tariff on solar photovoltaic solar panels from China. If you look at the context, we did an episode on this for listeners, splitting sunbeams it was. But the price of solar panels has gone down in this wonderful exponential curve in recent years. That's probably mostly driven by the manufacturing processes in China, which have started producing them en masse. We've started to see some of the economies of scale and, you know, gradual refinements of things like efficiency when such a huge industry is devoted to such a thing. It's a pattern that you see, you know, if something starts to have applications and starts to be subsidised, gradually it gets improved and improved and improved, and eventually prices can really fall down a long way. And now China exports solar panels to most of the rest of the world. It's ironic, really, it's this Trump promised to do all this trade protectionism and keep things buying American, but it seems to be limited just to solar panels at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean... You know, the whole point of having a protectionist trade policy like that is to grow your own domestic industry. But I have no, no indication that, that the U.S. federal government has any interest in growing a, a domestic solar industry, you know, beyond this, this trade tariff, this import tariff. So, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of a, how do you interpret this policy? I mean, I, I basically interpret it as, Protecting the the interests of of, uh, of of commercial fossil fuel groups are very very powerful within the Trump administration, and not so much about growing America's uh, photovoltaics industry. I mean, we'll see, but I I highly doubt that that's what will happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, when the idea was first suggested to the Donald, he probably just said, "Oh, great, it's kind of anti-China, kind of pro-fossil fuels. It'll annoy some liberals. It's great." Anyway, so the issues of climate change and energy that we have started to talk about now they're intimately linked. And I know that in your first PhD at Harvard, you did a lot of work on photovoltaics, silicon doping. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I worked on um, sort of a next generation photovoltaic technology called hyperdoped silicon. It's silicon that you put dopants into it um, at such a concentration that they're they're super saturated. Uh, and so there are different a few different methods you can use to get that very high concentration of dopants into the silicon and get them to stay there. And one of the methods is to use uh, pulsed lasers. So in, in my case, we were using uh, femtosecond pulse lasers as 10 to the minus 15 seconds. Um, and so they're very short. Uh, they melt the silicon for a very short period of time. Any dopants in the surrounding environment in a gas form or in a solid will diffuse into the melt at a pretty high concentration, like a few atomic percent. And then when it, when it refreezes, when the silicon refreezes, then the dopants become trapped um, at this very high concentration. Now that completely changes the band structure of the silicon changes its optical and electronic properties, and you can get silicon or other semiconductors if you do the same thing to them to absorb subband gap light, so absorb farther into the infrared, say. So people wanted to use that to make uh, uh, silicon solar cells that are more efficient. Yeah, because those listeners to earlier episodes will remember that the show we did Splitting Sunbeams about the Shockley-Keyser limit to solar panel efficiency. Essentially, it arises because silicon can only absorb certain wavelengths of photons, and so it can only absorb part of the sun's energy, part of the solar spectrum. So people have looked into using different materials, perovskites, organic semiconductors, quantum dots that could be more efficient, and they've looked into attempts to modify the incoming light, the wavelengths of the incoming photons, through photon splitting, which is singlet fission, the kind of die-sensitized solar cell idea. So this is similar, in a sense you say the dopants change the band structure of silicon, and it can absorb a wider range of the solar spectrum, the sun's energy, and become 
even more efficient. That's right. That's right. And in, in a sense, this story, you know, that that high efficiency or uh, next generation technology, it kind of fits into a very interesting, almost like a myth, at least that's sort of how I perceive it. Um, within the research community about about solar, there's there's been a sense that for solar to be deployed at a, at at scale and cheaply, then we have to achieve some sort of next generation breakthrough technology. But in reality, if we look at what's happened to the industry over the last 10, 15 years, say, uh, that has turned out not to be the case. That's turned out not to be necessary. Um, uh, we've seen huge reductions in in the production cost and the and the price, the consumer price of solar power, uh, based not on breakthrough technologies, but on more incremental improvements and economies of scale, as I mentioned earlier. And so, so I think this is sort of an interesting uh, aspect of solar research in universities today is that it's it's almost always focused on next generation sort of breakthrough technology, even though that's not really, uh, there's really no evidence that that's necessary um, in the industry. Now, of course, it's nice. It's good to have those technologies in the pipeline because that indicates that, well, solar can become even even cheaper potentially with those. Um, but I, I think solar, as you mentioned, it, since it's moving down this learning curve and it shows it hasn't stopped yet, uh, I think solar itself will become very, very cheap, much cheaper than than other energy generating technologies for the simple fact that it's it's a mass produced commodity and those tend to become very, very cheap. And that's, that makes it a little bit distinct from uh, other energy generating technologies that are that are more big, you know, infrastructure projects, uh, a little bit different from a mass produced commodity. So I think solar will become very cheap, and I think that the main challenge then, um, of course, there's many different technologies that will get integrated in the, the energy economy. But in terms of solar, of course, as many people know, uh, there's a challenge of balancing supply and demand, right, of storage, um, of dispatching the energy when you want it. And I think this will be a big technological sort of focus point uh, over the next decade or so. But I think it's... It, it seems like it is surmountable. Um, I think there's lots of different ways that will get integrated into doing that. One is uh, demand management, demand side management. Uh, things like we see some early signs of this with things like Nest, uh, sort of intelligent, um, sort of AI-based uh, energy use in the home, customized to your home. Um, I think as more real-time pricing or things closer to real-time energy pricing get implemented, then there'll be more market signals for people to do demand side management of, of energy use. And then, of course, there's the supply side, where which is storage more or less now. And and we'll see how cheap storage gets. I mean, of course, there's many ways to do storage. Um, I was reading recently about about uh, concentrated solar power and, and multi yeah, very interesting. Yeah. You know, I I, I uh, hadn't thought about those for a while, but um, you know, as as storage itself becomes more and more valuable in the market, then those gain an edge. Uh, but even uh -huh. even just thinking about photovoltaics and and electrical storage and batteries, we'll see how cheap batteries get. I mean, they could become very cheap. I, I don't. I'm not an expert on batteries, so I don't want to you know say I, I know they'll become really cheap, but I think, you know, any mass produced commodity like that, uh, has the potential to become very cheap, 
and uh, so we'll see where that goes. Absolutely, and we've absolutely seen it, as you say, with solar panels that have gone down this curve and just become so much cheap. Actually, to interject with a little point, you say that you don't need some breakthrough in efficiency to get solar panels to work or to be cheap, but you actually just need subsidies and deployment to get the cost down. I always like to say about solar panel efficiency, people say it's, what, only 20% efficient if you're lucky with silicon to convert the energy that falls on it to electricity. But if you actually consider the life cycle processes of fossil fuels, you have what? You have plants that absorb the sun's energy at about 4% efficiency. They're compressed and they're buried underground. Then they get extracted at great expense. And then they're burned to drive turbines that only convert 25 to 30% of it back to electricity anyway. So that's as inefficient a way of getting the sun's energy as you can imagine. When we've got these brilliant semiconductors that we can just dig out of the ground that have a band gap close to the peak of the solar spectrum, like silicon. Anyway, it's... It's a little distraction, but I'd like to say it's not like fossil fuels are that efficient either, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. and if you look at the statistics coming out of people like Lazard and so on, who work out the levelised costs of electricity, solar is already cheaper, especially in suitable locations where it's cheaper than other forms, which is already cheaper than other forms in a lot of countries. Wind is already cheaper than a lot of forms in lots of countries. And then if you even begin to include the cost of carbon dioxide and what it would cost to get truly clean coal or something like that, then renewables absolutely win the race, especially as fossil fuels get harder and harder to extract. And then you talk about batteries starting to get really cheap if they're mass manufactured, and I think one thing in recent years that has been really promising is that uh, over the last couple of years, electric cars are finally starting to make it onto the market. So you can talk about whether Tesla is a profitable company or Elon Musk's personality for as long as you like. But all car companies are beginning to develop electric cars. And we've seen that in the UK, even rumours about in China over the next few decades, that they're going to phase out fossil fuel cars and all new cars will be electric over the next few decades. If they make good on that promise, we'll see a lot of batteries being mass-produced. The price will come down, capacities will go up. If you look at the batteries on a Tesla, I worked it out that the supplies that the household's electricity needs, you can supply the household electricity consumption for an average American household for a few days with the Tesla battery. So if people have electric cars, you have like the beginning of a microgrid system that could potentially provide storage for domestic consumption at least. So I think there's good signs in direction of energy generation having a lot more solar in it. But of course we always have the problem that David Mackay said and pointed out in his books that if you want lots of solar, especially in a small dark country like the UK without any deserts, then where do you put all the panels? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I don't, you know, I, I think sometimes the land area is made maybe too much to be too much of an issue. When you consider transmission, when you consider, you know, all of the, the surface area that is, you know, simply unused right now. Um, uh, now, of course, for different countries, that, that can be more or less of a challenge. Uh, so we'll see. You know, I think maybe what you, you might see is more long range transmission of electricity. You know, I mean, I, I, as I understand it, uh, the UK already imports uh, hydropower electricity from Iceland, I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that's right. There's a big cable that goes under the English Channel that supplies power to France and often gets power from France with their fleet of nuclear reactors when British renewables need a helping hand. That's the way to go. France is a little bit of an exception because it's, it's got mostly nuclear electricity, and that's been the case since the 1950s and 60s when they built a whole load of nuclear power plants. But yeah, I think you're right. And when you look at the major projects, the really major projects that have tried to provide a serious amount of power through solar power. There was the Desertec initiative that wanted to supply the Middle East and the North Africa through panels in the Sahara Desert, and that comes out of the fact that you could supply the world's energy need, not just electricity, but total energy need, with a small fraction of the Sahara Desert coated in solar panels, which, okay, it's a big place, but the land is there. But of course the issue then is that you need high voltage transmission methods that can transport the electricity across countries, but we've seen that being developed, and of course 
Ultimately, if the cost of solar continues to fall, we could even see that kind of large-scale solution spread out in space with storage and transmission and also become economical. And if anything, we're seeing that fossil fuel extraction is becoming more and more expensive. You know, the cost of that is only going up. We're going to start developing unconventional reserves, which means the stuff that was considered too expensive to extract once upon a time. Well, now they're saying, okay, if we frack a little bit more, we can squeeze more gas out of this reserve and so on. The price for renewables can only go down, but fossil fuels are a mature technology. That prices mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's right yeah i think you know and i think all of these i you know i love discussing kind of the future of energy technology and i think one of the most sort of <laughs> the, the optimistic aspects of it is that pretty much you know all the technologies we're talking about they exist in some way right now already you know it's not like oh we have to figure out how to make nuclear fusion work or else we just can't do anything you know and I think that's a very common uh, myth. That's a common sort of assumption that that people make or that's promoted is that oh the current technologies can't do it. But really, scientifically, there's no reason uh, to conclude that um, because we know they technically they can, and of course they will continue to improve and they'll continue to get cheaper. So moving on to the politics a little bit. So from an American perspective, unfortunately we've mentioned him already, but I have to ask about Donald Trump. You know, there was an interesting bit of calculation that Ray Pierre Humbert, one of the scientists here at Oxford, he argued that actually the impact that Trump can have on climate change in just a four-year term is quite small, even if he repeals the clean power plan and so on. But if anything, I think that one of the most depressing aspects of Trump's election for most of us was the realisation that so many people deny or don't care about the basic science of the issue, or they don't think it will be important, or feel like they don't want to pay for something that will only affect them after they die. So how do you and the rest of the climate change community and the academic community over there feel about the current administration? Mm -hmm. Yeah, interpreting uh, President Trump's victory, of course, is... uh great pastime. It's become a great pastime here in the United States. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, many books have been written to explain how he got elected and, you know, everything like that. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm wiser than the people who have, who have weighed in on that. I mean, there's a couple of basic interpretations. One is that it was a, you know, almost like a statistical quantum mechanical fluke or something like that, you know, that oh, the stars aligned and this really weird thing happened. That's sort of one interpretation. Another interpretation is that um, is that essentially uh, a large fraction of the American population is is very disenchanted with with what they see as the current sort of elite uh, p- sort of power structure or elite parts of society. And voting for Trump was a way of uh, rejecting that politically. And I, I think that there's probably more to that than what a lot of people um, think. I, I grew up in a very, a very small town in the Midwest, in Iowa. And, you know, I know a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump. And, um, you know, it, climate change and some, you know, climate change was not really a, a reason they voted for him or against him for most people. It was more to do with a general feeling, a general sense of, of how things are going and, and how, how wealth is distributed, how power is distributed in the United States, um, and how it's, and also how it's concentrated geographically. And, you know, I think there might be some similarities with, with President Trump's election and, of course, the Brexit um, <clears throat> phenomenon in, in the UK. So, um, so I sort of interpret it more as a cultural issue as well as a class issue and, and some other there are other things going on there, too. But in terms of climate and energy, um, you know, I <laughs> maybe I'm too pessimistic, but I would say 
don't underestimate the amount of damage that a presidential administration can do. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, we we calculated it out and he can't really do any damage. I mean, that's that's fine. But um, we have to keep in mind that policy in the long term is path dependent. <clears throat> so if you have, you know, one administration that completely changes the direction of, of the policy environment, of the legal environment, of the physical energy infrastructure environment where people are investing for four years or for eight years, then, well, you know, that might take a while. So uh, personally, I would say don't underestimate um, the, the the impact or the damage that he can that his administration can do. Now, I think it's not totally unprecedented. Uh, in some ways, Trump's administration, his policy, the players that are involved are are similar to the George W. Bush administration in terms of how friendly he is to fossil fuel interests um, and and the. Uh, the attempt to downplay and deny uh, uh, aspects of climate change. I think we've seen this before, um, although maybe in a more subtle way uh, than what we see right now. So we'll see. I mean, it's going to be a huge battle. It is a big battle. It's a big legal battle, big policy battle, cultural battle. And I think it's it's TBD, so to speak. It's to be determined. We'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see who wins. Anybody could win. Yeah, it's a good point you make that although we know people don't have climate as the number one priority when they go to the ballot box, we kind of knew that already. And if you view his election as the rejection of elites, which of course includes scientists, which is part of the problem with Brexit people have had, and then it's not necessarily so much about climate change denial as people just not caring about it all that much. So it's depressing, but it's not apocalyptic. I should also point out that that minimal assessment of how much damage he could do was probably based on four years of business as usual and then we switched to a mitigation policy suddenly but it's probably not that realistic necessarily i mean the bigger and incalculable damage is not to emissions but the psychology of the problem the research and development that didn't get done he wants to slash the r&d budgets for solar energy the empowerment of fossil fuel industries that kind of thing and like if if you if you talk to people they already say the scientists the economists already say that we can't even afford to build any new fossil fuel power plants so you're locking in warming that will take us above two degrees Celsius. Of course, one good thing is that the Paris Agreement didn't fall apart after Trump decided to leave, and many places have actually redoubled their commitment to it, so we're not completely back to square one. But of course, as you say, there's lock-in, there's things like that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. If you enjoyed what our guest had to say, you can find his work via his LinkedIn, Benjamin Franta, in the show notes, and you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Franta. The article that he referred to, which deals with the case for climate activism, was written by Jeffrey Supran and Ploy Achukul Wissit. It's on Mashable, and it's called What Can You Do to Fight Climate Change? That link will also be in the show notes. It's certainly a different perspective for me, but of course they are right to point out that the real issue is to get off fossil fuels. Making energy efficiency savings in your own life will help, but to get from where we are to the Paris Climate Accord goal of 2 degrees Celsius of warming, the average American would need to cut their carbon emissions from 16 tonnes down to 2, Something like ceasing to drive altogether only cuts your emissions down by three tonnes. And as they point out, just by living in a carbon-intensive society, just by benefiting from its infrastructure, your footprint is still way over the limit. So the only way we can fix this long term is by pressuring governments and companies to switch to renewable energy solutions. Luckily, those solutions become cheaper every day. Thanks for listening to this episode. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod, and go to our website at physicspodcast.com, where you'll find a donate link that will help you support the show if you're so inclined. 
And you can also tell us any questions you have, any people you'd like to hear from, any subjects you'd like us to cover, all that kind of thing. You can contact us on the website at physicspodcast.com. Until next time, then. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.